Follow me, you whispered in my deep pain, but I can't imagine how. I've rejoiced on the mountaintops with you, but when you call me through the valleys, I can't see my own feet in front of me, and I'm left with no choice but to cling to you. Journeying through dark places dictates that I must trust you. Follow me was what you said to the disciples as they abandoned you, scattering into the darkness as you headed to the grave. And I realize I can trust you because you didn't stay there and you loved your disciples no matter what as you still do. Even in my darkest night, you shine as the day. In my hopeless situation, I remember how many hopeless situations you've conquered. That indeed, the only way out of the hopelessness is to listen as you say, follow me. Well, good morning. I'm glad you're here today, and uh, hopefully you are too. Uh, we are celebrating traditionally what we call Palm Sunday. Uh, for those of you maybe just getting familiar with the church or coming back toward it, this is the day that, uh, that we recognize that Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem the last week uh, before, of course, the cross and then the, the resurrection. Uh, came in on palm, with palm branches yelling Hosanna. Isn't it, isn't it interesting how fickle people were? Just a few days later, those same people probably yelling crucify him. Um, it's, a, it's a reminder to us just how dependent we truly are on the Spirit of the Lord. Today we're going to be talking about the cross and uh, looking uh, more deeply into that as we've continued a series called Follow Me. Uh, we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, and I encourage you to uh, turn there. If you have a, your Bible on a device or with you, uh, then you can follow along with us. We've got Bibles uh, available that ushers will be offering here in just a moment. But uh, can I just give you guys a, a little bit more of a challenge uh, about next week? You know, folks are truly open to invites more this time of year than any other time of the year. I think even Christmas, uh, because Christmas is just so inundated with other activities. But folks are spiritually uh, sensitive at this time. And the little tool that we've made available is a, a, a card like this, an invite card, and it's got all the information about the services and the activities that Emily just mentioned. Pick up a few of these on the way out and just pray about somebody that you can put them in your hand. I know that, uh, that we're looking forward to giving to our neighbors that have lots of small kids uh, because they will thank you if you invite them on Saturday. I promise you, if you haven't been there, it is a big deal and it is amazing what our uh, kids staff does to prepare for the, really there's thousands of folks that come out from our community. So even if you don't have kids, I would encourage some of you, if you can Saturday morning, Come and just kind of walk around and introduce yourself to folks who you don't recognize on behalf of the church and just welcome them back maybe to one of the three services. Um, and then I want to invite the 11 o'clock group because this is the group that most of our visitors end up coming to. If you regular uh, attenders at 11 could choose maybe 9 o'clock or even better on Saturday 530, that's going to help free up some space uh, for those that are going to be visiting. So looking forward to that. Uh, we... We're continuing the series and now it's kind of reached that pinnacle, kind of almost like a crescendo uh, to the cross of Jesus Christ. And today as we take a closer look at that, there's one thing I do know, is that the enemy does not like us to preach about the cross. He does not like it at all because he knows that's where the power of God uh, derives from, is that message of the cross. And he'll do anything he can do to dissuade us from uh, concentrating or focusing upon that. And so we really do need to call upon the Lord, pray, and ask for the Spirit of the Lord to just allow us to, to comprehend what its true meaning for us is today, especially as disciples of Christ trying to, to follow in that path uh, to follow the cross of the Lord. So let's pray, and then we'll dive into our message. Lord, 
We, uh, we come before you humbly. We thank you, God, for your word, for the power that's in its pages, but especially for this message. I'm, I'm reminded the Apostle Paul said, I, I claim to preach nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified because he knew that was where the power of God was. And so today, as that message goes out, God, wherever the folks that have gathered in this place at this time for this reason, uh, wherever they're coming from, I pray that, that your word will penetrate their heart. And if, if there is a person in the room today, Lord, who is undecided or has never understood what it meant to follow you, perhaps today is that day that they will take that step of faith to trust you uh, for their life and even for their salvation. So we commit this time to you and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, you know, when, when, when I uh, think about this mess in, in particular, and you think about symbols, uh, I remember reading an article sometime back, and it was, over the last 50 years, what are the most notable symbols, the most recognizable symbols? And I kind of was kind of intrigued by the list that was there. At that time, it was things like uh, the Coca-Cola, you know, emblem, and um, McDonald's, you know, the M, uh, the Nike swoosh, uh, some said the swastika, you know, that everybody would know what that symbol uh, would mean. And uh, so I kind of refreshed that from, from when I read that article last night. I Googled it this time. And so this time now it seems like right at the bottom when they say religious symbols, the cross is right there uh, among those. By the way, I got chastised last service by my Harley Davidson friend. He said, you should have had Harley Davidson on there. It's one of the most recognizable symbols. But uh, I said, well, you know. <laughs> anyway... Um, I, I, I got to thinking because of the, the exposure, the, the vast exposure of the cross. I mean, think about it. Uh, superstars, entertainers, athletes, they all wear crosses, you know, around their neck, you know. Uh, everybody, everyone from Madonna to Mother Teresa, right? And they, they'll all wear a cross. But do they really understand the meaning behind that? Is it possible that because of this vast exposure that we've kind of lost that or diluted that meaning of truly understanding what does it represent. So for us today, as we spend some time thinking about that and digging into the word and, and understanding what it was truly that Jesus Christ endured for our, our sake, as disciples of Christ, and this is what we've been doing. If you're just joining us this week, maybe for the first time here at North Shore, we've been walking through the last several weeks just the, the, the thoughts of what it would have been like to be a first century follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ, who he invited to come and follow him. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Now we understand the first uh, stages of that uh, journey that the disciples took, it was pretty exciting. There were miracles, he, he was calming storms, he was raising the dead, he was opening the eyes of the blind. I mean, some amazing things they were witnessing, but two weeks ago we shared that he turned a corner when he began to prepare them for what was about to come, when he said, we're going up to Jerusalem. And, and throughout this, this period of time, and I don't know chronologically when these statements were made, I, I suspect that this was shared before they literally were going to Jerusalem the last week of their three-year journey with him, but he began to say repeatedly, if you want to be my disciple, if you really want to follow me, he would say this phrase, take up your cross and follow me. Got your notes in front of you. I, I recorded one of those out of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew's version says, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross 
and follow me. Now, now here's the reality. When we read that today, we've got all of the thousands of years of history of what the cross means and, and all the theology and all the understanding and all the, the revelation that goes with it. But you're a first century disciple before he even tells you about going to Jerusalem and suffering these things when he says, take up your cross. So what does it mean to you? I tell you, when I say that, you probably think, well, you know, the cross is any difficulty or burden that we may be called to, to bear. I've heard folks, you know, that maybe let's just say they have a rebellious child and it's just causing them great stress and anxiety. And then they make the phrase, well, that's just my cross to bear. Or an illness, an ailment, something that, 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 is, that is yours, it's unique to you and you're walking through that and you say, that's, that's my cross. Maybe something that's painful, emotionally or physically. That's my cross, you might say. But I want to suggest to you today that, that, that as a first century disciple, none of those things would have been what you were thinking about. It wouldn't have been thinking about a burden or a difficulty. There was only one thing that the cross meant to them, and that was an instrument of death and execution that was specifically designed to be humiliating and painful. In fact, probably the most humiliating, painful form of execution that man's ever come up with. That's what would have come to your mind. So for Jesus to say, take up your cross, must have really caused them to step back a little bit. He always would add, deny yourself. In fact, one passage says, if you try to save your life, you're gonna lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, he said, that's when you're gonna truly find your life. That's when you're gonna understand what this is really all about. And so now, what he has prepared them for for weeks, maybe months, perhaps even years, he's been saying, this is, this is what's about gonna happen. Now it's gonna unfold. And as we see that unfold, if you were with us last week, we kind of left you. Um, Jesus was being arrested. He was taken before Caiaphas, the high priest. There was a mock trial with the 71 elders. We call them the Sanhedrin. Uh, they sentenced him to death, essentially, for blasphemy. But they could not carry out the execution without the the approval or the authority of the Roman governor who happened to be Pilate. So they usher him over to Pilate. Pilate basically uh, you know, questions him. He doesn't understand all this. He didn't understand what's behind all this. And finally there's a statement that says it was out of envy of these Jews that they were demanding this. But he's trying to do everything he can do to release him and absolve his responsibility. But he finally relents and gives in to the Jews' wishes and he hands him over to be crucified. That's where we start today. So if you have your Bibles open, we're looking at Matthew chapter 27. And by the way, uh, just in case you were wondering, uh, today we're going to be sharing communion at the end of the service. It's going to be very appropriate as we talk about this that we're going to remember the Lord through the elements that he set aside. So there'll be a time reserved for, at the end for the worship and, and communion we, uh, we walk through with Christ and, and, you know, there's so many details in all four Gospels. I'm looking at Matthew's Gospel in particular, and I'm picking up in verse 26 of chapter 27. Literally, this is where we left last week that they, uh, they found no reason. There were false witnesses that came forward, but at last, um, you know, they're, they're getting ready to, to hand him over Pilate has concluded, I don't see anything wrong with him. 
Uh, I'm trying to release him to, uh, you know, let Barabbas, uh, uh, you know, take his place, kind of, you know, I'll, I'll release one or the other. They chose Barabbas, and that's where we pick up. Then re- they released for them Barabbas. Having scourged Jesus, they delivered him to crucifixion, to be crucified. And then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. They stripped him, they put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, and they said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him, and they took a reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, put his own clothes on him, and they led him away to crucify him. And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And then they sat down to keep watch over him there. I want to stop right there. Um, this, is the, this is the process that now uh, Christ is going through as he endures uh, this, this cross. And I, what I want to do today, I want to take you basically to three thoughts about the cross, of what it really represents to us, okay? Um, here's the first one. And needless to say, the cross was a place of suffering, there was such great suffering there. Uh, Matthew records, as all the Gospels do, that it was a place called Golgotha. Now that term is a Hebrew term. It's derived from the Hebrew Golgotha, and it's actually Aramaic form, which is Golgotha, which literally means a skull. Now we don't know if it looked like a skull, or, uh, or maybe they called it that because there were skulls around it because of the, all of the executions that had taken place. I don't know. Uh, the location, you know, often is attributed to what we call the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is in a very congested, very much in the center of the city. But at that time, it would have been outside the gates. And there were a few, you know, physical signs that would have attributed it to be that place. Some have suggested there's another location uh, that would have been north of the city on the road to Damascus. And literally, I've been to that place, and literally there's a hill there that looks like a skull. There's like two slots for eyes. There was a slot for the nose uh, that years ago kind of came apart, but I mean, it really did. It looked like a skull, and it's just almost like what you visualized up, up on that hill. There's tombs that are nearby that were offered. There's evidence that those tombs were owned by wealthy persons by the number of cisterns that would have been associated. So there's, there's folks that have tried to anticipate, which is not a, it's not a big deal really in either way, but, um, but it was a place that everybody knew about. It was intended to be very visible. Golgotha, the place of the skull. Now, often we use the word Calvary. Where does that come from? That is the Latin version for skull. In fact, Latin is Calvaria, uh, and then there's another word associated with it, so that's what uh, the English word Calvary is derived from the Latin Latin version. So it all is basically talking about the same thing, Calvary and Golgotha. That's where they, um, they led the Lord, and, and that's where they, they crucified him. Hebrews 13, 12 says he suffered outside of the gates 
And so we know that it was on the outside of the city. It was too horrific of a thing for it to, for it to happen in the streets or in the, you know, in, the, in the part of the city. So it was on the outside of the city. As far as, you know, the people that were there, we know that the disciples have abandoned him at this point. Uh, all except for John. He's the only one we read about that was at the cross when this took place. Because Jesus said to him, Behold your mother, and he looked at John, and he kind of handed Mary off to John, and he told Mary, Mother, behold your son. And so he kind of connected uh, them, and Bible records that from that point on, he took her into his own home. Um, Peter, I don't think, would have showed up because of the shame that he was feeling. Don't you agree? After what we learned last week. And so Christ is going through this. It was a place of suffering. Let's talk, let's talk just for a bit about this, the physical pain that was endured. I, I just think about these moments, and you, you don't need me to, to dramatize this any more than, than what it just say, says on the surface. If you don't understand, I remember 30, 40 years ago, and we'd have depictions in movies and things like that. They kind of, kind of smoothed it out a little bit to make it very much PG, you know what I'm saying? Uh, until probably a few years ago when Mel Gibson brought about the passion of Christ and, and it was about the reality of what this really was all about. And it was gruesome. It was very gruesome. Jesus warned them about this. He spoke to them about this numerous times. He said literally what was gonna happen was three things. I'm gonna be flogged, I am going to be uh, mocked, and, and I'm gonna be crucified but on the third day I'm gonna raise from the grave. Well, as we just read Matthew's version, you notice that verse 26, it says that they had him scourged. That's the flogging that Jesus was referring to. The Romans would have done this. It would have been with a, a whip that was probably about this long, had these short strips of leather that had pieces of bone or, or rock on it. It was designed to literally rip the flesh off of a person's back. Many people did not survive the flogging or the scourging. It was that severe. But Jesus did survive. 39 lashes, one short of 40. It was supposed to be 40, but they'd always do one short because if they went over by mistake, they would have to endure uh, the flogging themselves. So they always went one short. That's why it was 39. He endured this. And then he begins to carry his cross through the streets of Jerusalem, apparently so, um, you know, just taken away physically at that point, he couldn't, he couldn't carry it. And they called on Simon uh, of Cyrene to carry it for him uh, out the city gates and to this, this place called Golgotha. The crucifixion. They would put spikes or, or large nails in, in his wrists because that was where the joints could withhold the, the weight of a body and they'd be spread out. They would cock the knee up a bit at an angle because by design, what it was gonna do when they put the nails into his ankles to hold him in place there, he would literally have to lift himself up every time he took a breath. And just think about that. On a back that was just, you know, taken raw. And, and then when he was thrust into the hole, you know, with the tree that they were attached to, then the, the shoulders would go out of joint, usually dislocated just because of that. And so the pain was, it was designed this way so that every breath he took was, was excruciating. That's why most who were crucified died of suffocation. They just couldn't endure that very long or of, uh, of loss of blood. 
And that's when the soldiers would sit and wait. And as we know from the story, um, Christ literally gave himself up. But the other two prisoners that were on the either side of him, they broke their legs so that they could not rise any longer and they would basically suffocate. There was a physical pain. And, uh, and make no mistake, it, it, was, it was very gruesome. This is one of the reasons why Roman citizens were not allowed to be crucified. It was just, it was too much. But there was an emotional pain associated with the cross. There were things that were going on that sometimes we don't stop and pause and think much about. I mean, yes, there are the soldiers that are right at the foot of the cross and they're, they're casting lots over the one piece of possession that he has, which is a one-piece garment. I don't know if there was certain value because of that, because that's a detail that is put in one of the other Gospels. But they, they basically are, are casting lots or, or throwing dice to see who would win that piece of, of garment. And that, by the way, was to fulfill a prophecy in and of itself. That was foretold hundreds of years before. People were walking by. In fact, let's just read. It says, then they sat down, they wait, waited. And over his head, it says, they, they put a charge against him which read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Okay? This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now, in another version, these religious leaders that basically ramrodded this whole thing through, they got extremely upset when they read this. And they go back to Pilate and they said, you can't put that up there. You need to change that and say, he said he was the king of the Jews. He's not our king. And Pilate had it up to here with these guys and he finally said, what is written is written. And it remained that way. Isn't it interesting in their attempts, but the truth, the truth prevails. So these guys, what do they do? They can't stand it. And so they take it upon themselves, literally, to go and to verbally assault him so that nobody, uh, nobody's gonna make any mistake about who he truly is. That's why they show up at the cross. There's two thieves that are on either side of them. And I'm sure they're saying, see, we told you, he's a criminal. He's worthy of death. They knew what the scripture said from Deuteronomy. Look at it for yourself, it's there in your note. Deuteronomy 21, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. Okay? And they knew that. And this was their moment. <laughs> this was their moment. They hated him. I mean, he was trying to upset everything that was so precious to them, all their systems and their religiosity and their piety and their righteousness. He was taking shots at that, and now they were getting their day. This was their day of revenge. But that wasn't even enough. They start yelling out at him. And it says, verse 39, those who passed derided and they wagging their heads and they're saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. By the way, does that sound familiar at all? If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Could we not go back three years earlier out in the wilderness when Satan comes and tries to, tries to get him to take a different path? If you're the son of God. You know, that's what he sounds like. That's his voice. And now he's personified 
in these, these folks. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. It's not that he cannot save himself, he would not save himself, and there's a difference. There is a difference. He says, he, he is the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him, for he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. It, uh, when I, I just think about him hearing this, he is the son of God, truly the son of God, and he's hearing these people mock him and deride him, as it says, and he endures that. There was emotional pain that was involved. Uh, obviously the time when, when he felt, he cried out, God, why have you forsaken me? He's carrying the weight of the sin of the world on his shoulder, and, uh, and God looks away because of that. And he feels that, he feels that pain. I don't know which is worse, you know? I suspect that this, this spiritual emotional pain could have even transcended the physical pain that it was so excruciating. So it was a place of suffering, make no mistake. I think a second observation, as the details just go on, it was a place of supernatural things that were going on. It was the place of the supernatural. As it, um, as it took place, I mean to start with, look, look at the next verse. From the sixth hour there was darkness over all of the land until the ninth hour. We don't know how dark, but it was dark. Some have, uh, by the way, the sixth hour means 12 noon, okay? Straight up noon. Sun's at the, uh, the middle of the day. From noon to three o'clock in the afternoon, it became dark. And some I know suspected, well, maybe it was an eclipse. Maybe this, there was a time and they've gone back and tried to trace the day. Friends, eclipses don't last for three hours, okay? Something else was going on. I don't know the phenomenon. All I know it was supernatural and God was sending a message this is a dark day. This is why we sing Dark Calvary. It was, it was a moment that was starting to get people's attention. There was geological phenomenon, physical things that started happening. Uh, one of those happened in the temple where the temple courts or cur and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to bottom. That was amazing. And guys, make no mistake, this was not any flimsy piece of cloth that you could just take your hands and go like this, okay? They say, in fact, when we were just over there, we were going through, uh, through a, a, a kind of a discussion or a talk of somebody, and they said that curtain could have been as much as three or four inches thick. And it went from the ceiling to the top of a very tall uh, point in, in the temple court which separated the Holy of Holies, which only the chief priests, ironically, could go into once a year, to the holy place, okay, that separated. So when that tore, God was saying, there is now access into the Holy of Holy. There was a message that was being sent by that. This is why, again, in Hebrews, it tells us, we now have confidence to go into this holy place. We have confidence because God has torn the veil, torn the curtain. And I don't know if it was in the same time or in the same proximity, but then there was an earthquake. 
If you go there today to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the place where the altar literally is over, it is a piece of rock that is broken that looks very clearly that it was done by some geological force like an earthquake, and that's why they assume that that was the spot, is because the earth shook and, and it was breaking the rock literally. Some have said that the darkness, the darkness brought about a terror because of the continuation of it. It went on and on and on. But an earthquake has a different kind of terror associated with it. If you've ever been through one, there's something that goes with the initial shock or, or shaking, but it's more the aftermath and the fear that you have of how long is this going to last. It's the uncertainty of it happening again over and over and over again. And so when you're getting this picture today, Jesus' response to all these insults and all this injustice and all, all of that is going on is to say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But the Father is looking down on this, and he is sending some very certain messages that this is my son who you're crucifying. And he instilled terror in these folks. They were starting to see things that they'd never seen before. If that wasn't enough, what about the physiological phenomenon? How would you like it if you began to see people that were in a grave in the, in the tombs and the tombs were opening up and the people were coming out of the graves? <laughs> You've seen zombie movies before, haven't you? <laughs> I, I mean, you'd think that that would have been a joyful thing. I don't think so. I think they're going, what is happening here? And he's basically sending the message. There has just been a victory one, victory over the grave, Victory over death. That has just been won. And so all these things were happening, and you would think folks would begin to get a clue, especially the chief priest. Think about this. You lived at the temple. That was your responsibility, your charge. And you literally see this curtain that is that's probably this thick that's torn in two. Would that not be enough to convince you? Think about how hard his heart must have been that he couldn't allow that truth to settle in. It's just amazing to me. So it was, a, it was a place of suffering. It was a place of supernatural. But the, the last thing I wanted to share with you is the sacrifice that was given there. Let's contemplate what that really meant. As Jesus himself said earlier to the guys, he goes, you know, they're, they're not going to take my life away from me. This is not something that is out of my hands or is just a, a, an unfortunate circumstance. I have come to do this deliberately. When we think of the word sacrifice, sometimes we'll associate it with, with a, an athlete. Oh, they sacrificed so many hours and so many years in preparation to be the best athlete they could or, or a musician or an artist and all the time that it takes to practice and the sacrifices they've made. We use that word sacrifice. I, and I don't see that here. This word that we're using, really, I don't even know if there's an English word for this idea. The word, probably closest thing we're thinking more about is a word called atonement. It's an exchange. It, uh, redemption is another word that we use often. It's exchanging something for something else. And in this case, the atonement is that exchange is happening for some, somebody that cannot do it for themselves. That's being done for you, something that you can't do for yourself. And that's why 
Jesus explained in John 10, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And as that sacrifice is being carried out, I, um, I, just, I, I start wrapping myself around this all, thinking about the cross, thinking about what it means even, even for my own life, when I say I want to follow Jesus and I'm going to follow him to the cross or I'm going to take up my cross and, and follow him, here's what comes to my thought in my mind. How many times did Jesus wrestle with this plan while he was here on earth? How many times was he tempted to take another way? We talked earlier about out in the wilderness when the enemy said, well, if you're the son of God, let's take a shortcut, okay? Let's, let's do it this way. He says, look, look here, I'll give you all of the world, everything you see I'll give to you if you'll just bow down and worship me. And so there was a temptation there. After he chose his followers, you know, Peter comes alongside when Jesus is beginning to disclose, I'm gonna go to the cross, I'm gonna suffer, I'm gonna be flogged, I'm gonna be beaten. One of those occasions, chapter 16 of Matthew, Peter comes and says, I'm not gonna let that happen to you. I won't let it happen. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking about God's will. You're thinking about only what, what you, you want. You're not thinking about the plan. He had to resist that. Two weeks ago, we, we took you to the Garden of Gethsemane where he's wrestling with God in prayer. I mean, he's such anguish that these tears were like drops of blood. And he's saying, Father, if there's any other way Please let this cup pass from me. But he said, nevertheless, your will be done. He knew what the will of God was. But friends, all of that at that point, all of that at that point was just the anticipation of what was to come. Now, today, he's on the cross. He's going through the excruciating pain, the emotional anguish, everything we've just described up to now, He's on the cross, and he's listening to these guys right in front of him say, if you are the son of God, then come off of the cross. Prove yourself. They even had the audacity to say, if you do that, then we will believe in you. You think that was true? I don't think so. And the very words that they were saying, interesting enough, in their mockery, there was a truth that was being told. They were telling the truth. You saved others. That was the truth. And you say, you couldn't save yourself. The only derivative there is you wouldn't save yourself. And that was true. Friends, how could we follow Jesus to the cross if he's saying, if you try to keep your life, you're going to lose it. But if you give up your life, he says, that's when you're going to discover it. How could he not then do that while he was on the cross? Here's a question I have for us today. What kept Jesus on the cross in that moment? As you're listening to these people mocking you, 
saying those things. Friends, you've been there before. You've been in a situation where everything inside of you wanted to scream back. You wanted to get revenge. You wanted to take yours out on that because it was not right. It was not just. It was not kind. Uh, And you're in that moment, and you want to jump back in there. And I just have to tell you guys, you want to know practically I mean, down to the core, what it means to follow Jesus and take up your cross, it's in those very moments that your, your insides are screaming for your right to yourself. I deserve this. Justice demands this. And there's something inside of you that, that says, I won't let this go. I can't let this go. And then you go to Jesus on the cross, like today, and you think about it, and you remember that. And you're thinking, but yet, look at Jesus. Look at our Lord. That's who we want to be like That's what it means to be a disciple, right? A follower, I'm gonna be like him. And what does he do? He remains on the cross. He endures that suffering. And he doesn't come off. Why didn't he come off? I thought about this this week. And I jotted down just a few thoughts. I think the first thing is just love. He loved you and he loved me so much that he didn't relent, he didn't give in. He didn't do what he had the power to do. He could have done it. He could have just jumped off there and said, see, here I am. He could have done that, but he didn't do it. Somebody once said, "Um, nails don't hold gods on trees, but love does. And that's true. I think the second thing that I thought about was the knowledge that he had. Uh, he was aware, aware of what prophecies said. He was aware that this was the plan. He knew God's plan. He knew God's will, and he knew this was it. Didn't mean that it was fun or it was enjoyable or that he even wanted to do. He was, I tell you what, he struggled with it, as we've talked about. But he knew that was God's plan, and he, he knew he was going to be obedient to that plan. I often use a word, when I think of that word knowledge, the word perspective, He had perspective, which I've always defined as the ability to make an immediate decision in light of the ultimate outcome. Think about that, that's worth repeating. To make an immediate decision in light of the ultimate outcome. Not to give in to what's right at the moment. If you saw what's the moment, you said, this just isn't right, right? But Jesus saw the bigger picture. He saw what was ahead. He saw on to the resurrection. And by the way, friends, when Jesus lives in your heart, and you're following him, he gives you that kind of perspective to not give in to the immediate, the pressure, the pleasure, the stress, or whatever it is. He, he helps you to see, okay, you endure this so that you can see down the road, the greater picture. He had that kind of knowledge. You know, what kept him on the cross? I, um, I believe that he understood that by doing so, that it was gonna have a greater impact on us ultimately than if he had done a miracle and came off of the cross. He, under, he knew it had to happen that way. But I go back to those folks who were yelling at him, come off, you know, and we'll believe you. Friends, if they didn't believe that Lazarus was raised from the dead when he actually was walking around, if they didn't believe the blind people that had their eyes open and the lame that were walking and storms that were calmed, and all the other miracles that they wouldn't have believed. You were right in saying, no, that wouldn't have made a difference. Jesus knew that there was going to be a greater uh, power and impact by him staying on the cross than if he succumbed to an immediate miracle like in the moment. 
So, what do we do today? What does that mean for us? Uh, in just a moment, we're going to be uh, sharing a time of communion. And, and uh, as we kind of prepare our hearts, even for that time, if today you're here and you have said, you know, I, I'm, I'm a believer in Jesus. I want to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I, got, I have to be real straight with you. When I look at the scriptures and Jesus talks about a disciple, there's a word if in front of it. And some would debate this issue theologically of whether you can be a disciple and not go all the way or in complete surrender or to the path that we're describing today. To not take up your cross, can you still be a disciple? I don't think so because if you want to be my disciple, you have to take up your cross. Can you still be a, a believer? Can you still be a Christian? Can you still be saved and going to heaven? I think so. I think, I think there's a choice, a decision that we're making today. Will you follow Jesus to the cross and identify with him there? And so what does it mean for us? What are just some practical things we can take away of how we take up our cross? Here's some things that I, that I would just observe. I think we learn from how not only Jesus lives, but today we've been reminded of how Jesus died. And that too is something that we need to learn from. How did he die? And how can we follow that example? How can we be like him in his death so that we can also be like him in the, the life to come? I, I, just, I just appeal to your remembrance of one guy that was sitting there and was, had a front row seat for all this. You know who it was? The centurion. Think about this. He was a guy whose job it was to do this on a regular basis. He was so calloused, he'd heard the curses, he'd had people, the bitterness and the anger, you know, spitting on him. He had had it all. He was so calloused, all that. And that's probably why he could go up and break their legs, you know, and, and just to kind of help the things along a little bit. I, I, I just think about it. That's the guy, and yet he's the one who, after watching all this and watching the way Jesus dies, he comes to the conclusion, surely he was the Son of God. It's the way he died. And friends, as followers of Christ to take up our cross, there are gonna be more people probably impacted by your example in how you go through suffering than from anything else you will do as far as a witness is concerned. And they're watching you. Make no mistake, they're watching you how you go. If you get angry and you whine and you complain and you're you know, shaking your fist and want your rights and all that, that says something about who your Lord really is. And usually what that means is you are the Lord of your life because you're demanding your own rights. Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ so that I no longer live, but Christ is the one who lives. So if we're truly following him, friend, let's be, let's be honest with ourselves. It's gonna be this example, okay, that we follow. I think the second thing is we see Christ's love in who he tolerated as much as in the pain that he suffered or endured. <laughs> We think about the pain on this weekend when we remember the cross, and, and truly it's worth remembering. Each week when we come here at North Shore, we take the elements, the cup and the bread, and, and we're reminded you know, of what it represents, a body broken, blood that was spilled, and there's pain associated. But friends, think about the, the people he tolerated. And his response was, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You wanna take up your cross? Then in those moments, when, when everything inside of you wants to get back at them and make them hurt the way that they hurt you, 
Go to the cross and follow Jesus and love them, tolerate them, forgive them, pronounce peace upon them, whatever it is that he instructs you to do. And then the last thing is, now it gets very personal, our path to forgiveness is to realize that I was there. You wanna know the forgiveness of the Lord? Realize that it was my sin that put him, put him there. I, I, uh, two weeks ago, I was really caught off guard when I was doing my study and I was taken over to Isaiah 50 and I'd seen things I don't think I'd ever seen before that were foretold about Jesus' emotions and his, his feelings and just his mind when, when he contemplated what was about to happen in the garden when he was praying, I think. And... Uh, and it even was so specific to describe the torches. I mean, you, if you were here, you remember. And I just, I just thought, wow, that's the mind of Christ. Last week, we went into the Psalms in a similar fashion, where it's getting into his heart of how it felt to be betrayed by your close companion, the one who traveled with you, the one who worshiped with you, and, and Judas was that guy, and how it felt to have him be the one that betrayed him after all these years. Well, friends, I'm going to do it one more time. And today as we close, I want to read Isaiah 53 because nothing depicts our place, our transgression, our, our role in all of this and what Jesus did as a result better than the prophecy hundreds of years before all this happens in Isaiah 53. I'm going to read verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. And yet he opened not his mouth. He was like a lamb that was being led to the slaughter. Remember last week we talked in front of Pilate that he wouldn't answer his questions. He was just there quiet. He wasn't defending himself. He says it was like, like a sheep being uh, before his shearers was silent. He opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for this generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. There's no deceit in his mouth. And yet it was the will of God to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his off offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. That's what Jesus was thinking on the cross. He knew that he stayed there because he knew today, this day, this very day, what he did there would attribute to us being accounted righteous as we put our trust in what he did. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. 
and yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for those transgressors. That's you and me. Aren't you glad he did? Aren't you glad he did? That's our Jesus. That's our cross. That's our cross that we sing about. These weeks we've been referring to, I told you that this whole series was kind of born out of an old hymn, Where He Leads Me, I Will Follow. And I hope today, in your heart of hearts, as we, we're going to invite the ushers, they're going to be distributing these elements. If you'll hold those together until we've all been uh, served, and then we're going to uh, take that. But as they're serving us, we're going to sing the words of that old hymn. And I hope that this is your confession today, that wherever it is that he leads us, that's where I will follow. Amen? Let's sing it together. Where he leads me, I will follow.